Hello and welcome to The Raptor Show. I'm your host, Wim Lu. Reminder, we're dropping daily all throughout for agency, so please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing if you haven't already. On today's show, I have Coach David Thorpe from True Hoop. Uh, Coach, I feel bad because on a recent episode, I was listening to you talking to Gerard, and um, you mentioned that your wife was on a trip of some kind, and so I, instantly in my mind, I was like, this will be a good time to call coach. I feel like coach might have some free time. So coach, thanks for letting me take advantage of a little bit. I, I, I honestly, William, um, I'm turning down about 90% of the requests. I just don't have the time. I've got these other businesses that I have with basketball and, but um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I mean that sincerely. Wow. Okay. That That's really, really nice. Um, so, on today's episode, what I really wanted to do was look ahead to uh, the NBA Finals, which Game 1 will take place uh, on Thursday between Miami and Denver. Um, so we'll look at that matchup. I think it's going to be a really interesting one, especially from the coaching perspective. Um, then I, you know, I'm obliged to talk about the Raptors head coaching search every day. We are now on day 40 between Nick getting fired and the Raptors um well, they probably won't hire somebody today because I understand that they're in the second round right now. So I'm assuming that this process maybe wraps up as early as the weekend uh, or next week. So we'll talk coaching every single day, and I'm sure um, you'll have a lot of insight on that front. Um, so I'm starting to do a little bit of draft prospect you know, viewing as well. And, and by that, I mean I watch some YouTube videos and look at the strengths and weaknesses kind of things just to get familiarized with sort of how they look. Um, and then, yeah, we might finish a little bit in terms of just the bigger picture discussion on where the Raptors uh, go this offseason. But let's start with the NBA Finals. Um, obviously, Miami got there in Game 7. Um, it, it was a little, I don't know, I was a little bit surprised with that game. It felt like Boston had all the momentum. Uh, but I thought Spo made a couple of adjustments towards the end there. Um, thought they switched a lot more pick and rolls in Game 7, which was maybe putting Boston a little bit um, out of rhythm. Obviously, that zone of theirs was very effective. Coach, I guess I just wanted to start quickly with Game 7. Like, what were some of your takeaways from seeing Miami not win it relatively comfortable? Because I feel like they definitely played with all-out intensity. But at the same time, it, it wasn't as competitive as, as many sort of expected. I'm, maybe I'm just dumber than most guys. But I, I try to see the game in, in big picture first. Um, and only when big pictures are equal can you start dialing into the smaller things. Jason Tatum was severely hurt first play of the game. Game over. Sure. I mean, really, the game's over right then. Um, Miami had to have played terribly. And remember, Tatum's a two-way player. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it affected him on both ends of the court. Miami shot great. That's a factor. He shot really well. Boston shot very poorly, in part because of Miami's team speed. I think that matters. I wrote about it. You'll see. I know you read our stuff. I'm publishing it. We just I just got done with it now. So mm-hmm. they're playing with it. They're editing it. Um, I think Miami team speed is a big deal, uh, especially when Martin and Vince are on the court with Bam and Jimmy. And um, Jalen Brown was terrible. Can't dribble. That speed also factored in there, the toughness Miami plays with. But if Jason Tatum isn't hurt, they Boston probably wins. It's just the cold reality of just like, mm. I know Toronto fans will hate me saying this, but a healthy Warriors team smokes you guys. But this is the way the game is played. Like you, yeah. this is part of it. In every sport, injuries are always a factor. And um, Tatum gets hurt. Play one. Yeah, and I thought that was it right then. 
Yeah, no, I mean, trust me, I, I'm not hurt by what you're saying about the 2019 Warriors. I feel like that team healthy beats like probably 99 teams, <laughs> right. 99% of teams ever in existence. Right. It was one of the uh, best teams of all time, probably when that went healthy. Yeah, they were so. Yeah. 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 So Miami, yeah. Miami deserves to win. They did a lot of great things. Listen, they wouldn't had 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 they not gotten three wins, then Tatum's injury wouldn't have mattered in the game seven because it wouldn't have been a game seven. So Miami earned right. that. Uh, they also have no apologies. They, they've had injuries all season mm -hmm, yeah. and, and had in this series. I mean, Kevin Love didn't play the last two games. I don't know if it's injury or not, but Tyler Hero didn't play the whole series. But uh, Gabe Vincent missed a game that they lost. So um, I thought that was the biggest thing. It, it, Brown seems unhappy. Um, we'll see how that goes. But I thought Tatum's injury was the biggest issue. Yeah. Um, sometimes it is kind of really simple. Um you know, I was listening to um, your show, and, and you were talking about sort of this version of the Heat will probably be a 50-win team. Like, we should stop looking at them like, Correct. oh, an eighth seed has gone to the finals. I mean, obviously, that is true, and it's historic. It's fun to sort of play that angle. But at the same time, you're estimating the quality of that team close to a 50-win team. Can you sort of explain, like, why that is right now? Oh, I, I would say that more than a 50-win team. I actually just wrote I, – I just went through my piece before I sent it to my editors, and that's exactly what I wrote because I forgot I'd written it. Um I mean, Kayla Martin is this two-way stud who's this great athlete. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he shot fine this year in the playoffs. He shot incredibly well, has been shooting incredibly well. Gabe Vincent, a two-way player, reliable. Uh, uh, Duncan Robinson is a factor. He, he They got an easy layup or two a game because he's such a threat as a three-point shooter, and he kind of found his swagger again. Even though, you know, think about it, he missed – two huge threes or they could have won game six mm -hmm. um, yep. and came back, came out smoking in game seven. Uh, I think hero being out helped Jimmy Butler find his offensive game more. He, he really had no choice. They may have worn him down, which is a factor going forward, but uh, they, and they, and they also Atlanta crushed them on the glass in game one. I'm sorry, yep. play in game one. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, Got them more focused on. We have to take care of the backboards more. And and I was reminded of a. Uh, I did a podcast yesterday where they said about the offensive rebounds. They up seventeen to Boston in Game Six. Uh, and I said, yeah, but Boston missed sixty shots. Sixty shots. That's that's the Raptors style of uh, winning the possession battle. Yeah, what? right. <laughs> Keep missing, and you're bound to get some. Right. So um, uh -huh. I just think that they they kind of this is what Spolster's done this a lot. Remember. He he's that bubble team was incredible, but this is a guy that took a team that was eleven and thirty, and they finished the season thirty and eleven. Yeah, they went forty one and forty one, missed the playoffs by one game. But that's extraordinary, extraordinary mm -hmm. of a mm -hmm. team that's to turn a team that's that headed for twenty two wins and get them on a sixty win pace. I just they're they're, they're I wrote a, I wrote an article as you know probably last week, uh, maybe yeah, maybe when they went through up three zero about the kind of culture that they have. I don't remember if I can cuss on the show because the, the title had a curse word. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I know what you're talking about. Um, you know, Miami with the FU culture and kind of those yeah. And I think that, no, that's, that's really cool. And um, I mean, look, we'll, we'll talk about head coaching searches and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think the, your goal with any organization is essentially to establish some sort of culture where we have standards, we have, you know, this is what we expect of you. And all the great teams are like that. And I think Miami, like the heat culture thing, especially having talked to a couple of people from Miami who cover the team closely, like it, it's 
it's not necessarily like as real as you know people that can make it into a joke but at the same time like you can joke about it but unless you actually have that kind of standard of excellence you probably won't get to the point of being excellent in the first place and so miami's in the finals they're gonna play denver who have been off for like 10 days um and I think the number one question in, in this series obviously comes down to is how is Miami going to guard Jokic? And I'm, especially with Eric Spolstra, I'm not just expecting a fastball. I'm expecting a curveball, a slider, changeup. You know, there's going to be a multiple different looks against Jokic. But let, let's, let's focus on what is the primary look that Miami will throw against Jokic? And do you think that will work? Oh, I don't think we have any idea what the primary focus is going to be because I think it's going to be pragmatic. Okay. Uh, the ebbs and flows of the game. Um, I can see them wanting to start if Kevin Love is healthy, have Kevin Love guard him and let Bam um, play from behind a little bit the way mm-hmm. uh, the Lakers tried to do with Hachimura and AD and the way Minnesota did. I forget who they had guarding Jokic, but Gobert was the helper. Right. It hasn't worked yet, but I understand the process to it. I think there'll, there'll be some, uh, not just random doubles as much as scripted doubles and random doubles. Mm. Um, you want him to, and then they'll play different zones also. Uh, uh, Denver trashed zones all season, but right. they didn't trash Miami zone all season. And Miami gets to play them game after game after game and tweak up what they're doing. So I think you'll see it. And if, if the series lasts, you know, I think as long as it could, uh, you're going to see that zone evolve. Mm. And, um, the problem with for Miami is they're just small. Jokic is not small. Mm-hmm. They've not faced anyone that can score like him inside. And he does lots of lots of other things too. But his ability just to drop buckets over defenders is legit. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And um do you know what do you know what his record is the last four years against Miami? No. Seven and one. They've won six straight. Man. Yeah, he's put up big numbers, not not gargantuan numbers, doesn't have to. He's mm-hmm. he's just unsolvable for them so far. But now they get a really lock in game after game after game and see if they can find something. I think one of the things they might do is go butler on him and try to turn him into more of a scorer and see if maybe he's reticent to take that role. Uh, you're just trying to win possessions. And every yeah. time you create a little doubt in his mind, you have a chance to win that possession. Whereas if he kind of knows what's coming, I think he'll always solve it. He's, you know, I, I was asked, uh, William, after game one, did, uh, did Darvin Ham find something in sure. having Hachimura guard him? And I just had a laugh. Yeah. Uh, you probably heard me on the podcast. Like, yep, yep. Oh, Rui Hachimura is not going to answer. He's not the answer for solving Nikola Jokic. No, uh-huh. he's just brilliant. He's the best player in the world. Yeah, I, I just think that, you know, there's obviously different classes when it comes to like star players, right? And I think that, you know, um, you compare it to someone like Jalen Brown, who was objectively like a really, really good player. Great player. No Jokic. Uh, but like you could speed him up. You can make him play in a crowd. You can make him dribble with his left. There are certain things that you can really do that sort of like um, throws yeah. him off his game. And obviously game seven was the, the, the clearest example of that. With Jokic, I don't really think you can speed him up. Which it's weird. I feel like that's almost... No, he wants to play fast. Exactly. Exactly. So you, I don't know. I mean, you almost have to sort of really, really... Uh, I think with with all great players, like, can you limit his touches? And I'm thinking, like, can you, if it's not too exhausting for Jimmy Butler, but he seems like the only guy athletic enough to do it, like, can you front him with Jimmy, really prevent that post-entry pass, and then you have Bam sort of pinching him from behind? Can you do that? Well, the problem is, 
he's so good at using his body. I compare him in my article to a, an iceberg. A lot of, of his success comes from stuff you don't really see. Okay. Coaches will see it. Fans will see it. So if Butler is going to front him, I actually have clips on this that I just sent out to a bunch of my players. Jokic will keep him above him and they'll work them all around. And the millisecond Bam leaves that bottom half of mm -hmm. that, of, in a sense, that tandem defense, uh, he'll just seal Butler above him. They'll throw the lob or they'll throw an angled pass and he'll just get a layup or a dunk. It's super dangerous. Um, mm. And and also if Bam is doing that, uh, Jokic can screen both guys. He can kind of occupy Butler right, and screen right. Bam as Gordon drives to the rim. That I, I don't know that that he really understands how to use his body in such a brilliant way. It's an underrated part of his game. We talk about a lot of other things he does, but trust me, he seals with the best of them at a very high level. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, it, it really forces people to, you know, be very, very creative in terms of how you guard him, right? I mean, right. I, I, I think I looked up the numbers just before uh, we hopped on here. Um, Jokic in the regular season averaged 98 touches per game. Um, he's up to 114. He leads all players in the playoffs. That's partially due to the fact that he's playing more minutes. Obviously, the games are more intense as well. But, like, I mean, you give an, a great player an, a, an extra 16 touches per game, like, obviously, yeah. he's going to really kill you. And I was thinking yeah. about, like, how can you really limit his touches? And m maybe this is just a product of watching a lot of Nick Nurse basketball, but he gets really creative in these scenarios. And he will do stuff like that. There was, like, entire games I remember in previous years where the Raptors ultimately lost to Denver a lot. But, like, he would put OJ Anobi on Jokic and essentially try to front him the whole time. And it did lead to quite a few steals. Um, the Raptors also just lost quite a few of those games. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a great player. I don't know what else you can really do. I also right. think in, ter in terms of the Nuggets, um, especially when they play in Denver, they, they play at this incredible pace that feels yeah. like nobody can catch up with them. I, I'm, I'm curious in terms of just like, is that just altitude? Is that strategy? Is that uh, just having great oh, players? Both. Like, what is it's it? It's both. You you could really see Jokic in the Lakers series. I I in game one I saw it like oh this guy, he he's landing on a he's rebounding and the millisecond his sneakers hit the ground, boom he is pushing mm -hmm. the ball. Uh, he's forcing AD and LeBron to change ends, and they did. But there was a design there. In fact, right. I I I said the same thing in that series as I said in this one for that series to be close, which I thought it would be. LA's got to win, you know, game one or game two, especially I thought game one, mm -hmm. because as the series goes on, Denver is the, the Lakers are going to fatigue out. They're going to fade out. And yeah. that's exactly what we saw. I feel the same way here. Miami wins game five or game six. Even I really think they have a good chance to win game one and then potentially the series. I don't feel that way anymore. I think they're going to wear down. And I think uh, uh, they have more bodies uh, uh, than, than the Lakers showed. I thought the Lakers had and just didn't do it. They're going to probably play Cody Zeller some, certainly Kevin Love, yeah. big bodies against Jokic. Those guys can survive a little bit, and um, especially with Love as a shooter. But uh, I, the, the problem is, and again, I ju I'm just writing this now, is I think that Miami has a big advantage in the intensity in Game One from the previous series. I've always some, I've always right. tracked that that the team you just played can impact Game One of the next series. How long does it take to adjust? The, the Lakers did not put up a fight compared to what Boston did. And Denver's been off nine, 10 days. I think Miami, it gives them a big advantage intensity-wise. They still have to make shots. Mm -hmm. And Denver still has to make shots to start. 
Uh, but I, I that it's going to take a while to, to ratchet up that intensity and match it. And um, Miami can steal game one. The problem is when you're playing at altitude early on, you struggle to get your breath. Right. So I could see Miami could get a really good start and then have to sub because they just kids can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And then that allows the game to get closer, which gives Denver more of a chance. So every all those factors favor Denver, all of them, other than they just came out of an incredibly intense series, which I think helps. And let's face it, they just beaten. But what they've had to do do is much tougher as the eight seed, mm-hmm. knocking off Milwaukee, knocking off you know pretty tough Knicks team, knocking off you know the number one net rating team in the league in Boston, winning three games in Boston is pretty amazing. Yep. Um, so they're to be respected and admired. I just, I just, I think they're matched up with the best player in the world, and they're the other conditions don't don't favor them. Yeah, you know when I watch the Nuggets play, I think number one is just it. it Watching Jokic push the pace um, for a guy with that big of a body, it yeah. just I can't really remember that many other instances of that happening because obviously he's going to get every rebound. And I felt for, for the Lakers, watching that series, after game one and two, I was like, I don't even want AD to chase the offensive glass anymore. I just want you to get back. Yeah. Because if you chase the offensive glass, first off, Jokic is a great rebounder. And if he gets that rebound, he's pushing and you don't have the, the energy – um, or your even base just, isn't set. You're, yeah, yeah, a yeah. great you transition defense starts with a good base, which means you race home. Is mm-hmm. what we teach even young kids: race home, and then you build out from there. And they're always chasing, and they're trailing, and that was a problem. Yeah, and I and I wonder too, like how structured can you really get in terms of uh, transition offense? Because it feels like to me, watching the Nuggets, they get a great shot every single time down, even if it's five on four, which isn't necessarily even that big of an advantage. They still get a wide open look especially when they're sort of running and getting early offense. And and I don't know, I'm sure there is a structure to transition offense. You just don't see it as much as like you see video breakdowns all the time of half court offense and yeah. this play worked because of this or like this is a flex offense, this is horns. But people don't really explain so much like transition offense and the structure that comes with that. So I want to ask you, coach, like, you know, is there something structurally that Denver does in their in their transition offense that makes it look so good? Aside from the fact that they have, you know, Denver or they have, they have uh, Jokic who is a cheat code. Uh, right, right, cheat code. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they have a couple of cheat codes. So first of all, the answer is 100% yes. Transition offense is a huge part of, uh, to me, what great coaches can do uh, because that's where spacing starts. Mm-hmm. I-, I learned myself long, long ago um, from a brilliant coach named Shaky Rodriguez who coached at Miami High. And I coached a different team against his team. Uh, I'm not, I didn't coach my own team. Someone else gave me their team mm. and said, well, you coach my team because they don't know how to play man-to-man defense. And you know how to teach it. And so I said, yeah, I was 23 years old. I said, yeah. And so our first game was against Shakey's team, who wins the state like every year. Udonis Hazel, by the way, played at Miami High, which is where Shakey was a legendary okay. coach. And then Shakey's two assistants, Frank Martin and Anthony Grant, who are at, now at, um, North, at uh, UMass and Dayton, were mm-hmm. JV coaches when I was also a JV coach back then. But I'm coaching this varsity team. And the way he had the number two player in the country, Doug Edwards, race to the rim and then his big guy trailed the play who could shoot the who could shoot from the perimeter who ended up starting at kentucky for years and then he had wings flying and the point guard hard pushing like it, there's a everyone there's lots of different transition offenses that was one but you can stretch the floor vertically the way the way denver does is mpj at six foot ten can get a shot over anyone mm-hmm. and you know it so you've got to really find him early uh aaron gordon is an athlete you have to find him and then Jokic is just so brilliant and so quick to get off the ball, which I think is probably the biggest key. His mm. pace is great on the push, 
And then the millisecond he should throw it, he throws it. If he shouldn't, he doesn't. He's, he's, he's the cheat code in the transition offense, too. Uh, he also can keep going to the rim if you don't right. account for him that way. So um, they value it a lot, if, if, as they should. When George Carl was at Dunedin, at Dunedin, that's a city in my town. Mm-hmm. If George yeah. Carl, when he was at Denver, they really raced. And they and his best team uh, uh, finished, I think Masai was running the team then. Yep. Finished uh, like second in the league. The Warriors knocked him out when David Lee got hurt. And Harrison Barnes played the four. And that's where the death lineup was formed against that Denver team. But they outraced everybody. And had an unbelievable. I think they won fifty-seven games that year. Who had an unbelievable home record, mm-hmm. uh, like only lo- lost once after January at home. <laughs> they ran people out of the gym all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is the unique advantage that that Denver has. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about Jamal Murray yet, which um, we will. <laughs> I mean, this team is just the two-man game with with Jokic and, and Jamal. Is that is that the best two-man game in the league right now? I mean, oh, I it's, think, it's, well, it's the best one alive, but Harden Embiid was probably the best pick and roll tandem in the league. Interesting. Okay. I think they have the number one point per possession, but it's right there. Reg- regular sure. season wise, for sure. But it felt yeah, like yeah. when you got to the playoffs, you could scheme in a little bit, especially if you've had enough like size wings where you can sort of survive switching that pick and roll a little. Yeah. 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 Um, Murray's Murray's talent, I think, and I don't, I don't have the data in front of me. Um, his ability to make tough shots is just pretty special. Yes. Uh, he's very good at going to the rim. I just looked it up today. 67% from zero to three feet at the rim. Very good, according to basketball reference. Um, but when you cut him off and he has to shoot over you, he's just okay with that. He's just really special. And he's on a, he's on a bender right now. He, he's, you know, the, the rim seems like an ocean to him, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then all the things Jokic does. And one of the great things about Jokic is, if you've heard my podcast, you've heard me talk about uh, the way Jokic rolls to the rim. I play a little musical sound to it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Yep. He is just traipsing through the lane. Whereas a lot, and there's now sometimes it's good to race. We call it race rolling. Mm-hmm. Screen, hold your screen, race to the rim, bury your guy. There's things to do there. But he just has this genius vision of, knowing when to meander through and at the last moment, and by the way, because his hands are so good, mm-hmm. Murray can hold on to it late. And even in traffic, if you deliver a hyper-accurate pass, he, he, a lot of guys miss passes or defl- because there's so many arms and hands in the way. Jokic just catches it like no one's on the court but him. Yep. And it's super effective. Yeah, very effective. Yeah, no, and um, man, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about – just the nightmare that it is, because I thought the Lakers. I mean, the Lakers were a really good defensive team. Like that—that's yeah, how they, they got the into the conference wins. finals. Yeah, so good. They finished. I looked it up. Top five in the league after the All Star break. Right, and and that held true in the playoffs as well. With that's how they got past Memphis. That's how they got past the Warriors. It wasn't with offense. It wasn't with scoring. It was mostly because they were so good defensively. And then Denver took them apart. And I think the frustrating thing too is just you know there are lots of possessions where the Lakers. Did everything you really could to stall out Denver's offense, and then Jamal will just make a super tough shot at the end of it. Yeah. And I think that's the thing too, where you got to just like maintain your mentality against them. I mean, some of the supporting guys. I mean, you know, MPJ. I think defensively, I would love to see a lot more. That's not a unique take. Um, there's a lot of games where I watch where he's like the backline help defender, and he's got to rotate to the rim, and 
he's just so I hate to say soft there, but he's like guys space. just guys he's just like finish over top of him. Even if he's there, you don't really feel his presence. He gives off a lot of and ones instead of just fouling, preventing the bucket. So I would love to see him compete a little bit more on that front. I mean, Aaron Gordon offensively it was it was interesting watching the Lakers series, and I know you guys were talking about it a lot. It's just like he's got to find his confidence and rhythm when he's getting you know doubled off of because that's always going to happen. Like you know, correct. You know, a lot of teams even stash their centers on him, um, and that's where he's got to find some sort of aggressiveness. I thought in Game Four, this is like literally two weeks ago now, but right. he finally started taking shots, and he looked good. He looked fine. I actually wouldn't mind for him to take a couple of threes early in possessions, maybe in the first quarter, within the flow when his guy leaves him and just leaves him wide open. He can make a shot. It's not like he can't make shots. Right. Um, he's really well-liked, too, on the team. And mm-hmm. I think that should give him some courage to not be afraid to miss. Right. Yeah. No, and and because he's not a guy who jacks up shots. Like, I, I, look, MPJ takes out-of-rhythm shots. I mean, I think it's because he has Stupid, the supreme stupidly. confidence. Stupidly. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. He's got you have a Jokic little... on your team. You don't got to take any bad shots. Right. There were some. Sh- there were some games I remember, um, either in the second round or in the third round, where he would just come down and pull up, and it's like, man, that, that's fine. That that really is fine. But ultimately, like late in games, like you really got to make sure you take the right shot and you have rebounders in place and all that kind of stuff. But it's just really hard to get at Denver. My only thing is, my concern with Denver is if they get one injury, their rotation is already quite thin. It seems like. Um, Mike Malone's only playing seven, sometimes oh, they, eight. They have the talent. They have the talent to play ten. He just doesn't want to do it. He made that decision a few months ago. Right. I'm just not playing those guys. It's uh, in fact, in fact, they played Miami this year in Miami, and Thomas Bryant had ten points and not a lot of minutes. Mm-hmm. He had just gotten there. Uh, four or five from the field. I looked up the other. I looked it up the other day just for this reason, and uh, but he hasn't played in basically since then almost. Right. Mike right. Just made that decision. We're going with our guys that have been here. And so the rookie barely plays now. He, pl- he played a little bit as the eighth man because he's mm-hmm, a rookie, mm-hmm, but at least mm-hmm. on the team in the beginning. Bryant, Reggie Jackson, they're out of it. As much as I think they could help, he doesn't think so. And you know what? It's worked so far. If they sure, end up losing, course. if they end up losing because he won't play those guys, I think that's on him because those guys are good players. They have a couple of athletes, I think, um, on that bench that, you know, obviously Christian Brown is definitely one of those guys. He's very active when he comes into the game. Zeke Naji as well. Like, I, I, you know, you haven't really seen much of those two in the playoffs, um, and obviously they're here, so you can't really second-guess it. But at the same time, I do wonder, like, against Miami, who's a smaller, quicker team, I might prefer some of those guys to, like, a like a Jeff Green. You know, no offense to Jeff Green, but I feel like he's he's more built for more half-court settings. I, you know, he looks, I think size can really hurt Miami, and, and Mike Malone, I don't think he cares. I think he's... Uh, my, my reporting is that he and Calvin Booth aren't don't talk to each other very much. They don't like each other. Mm. And I know why. Calvin Booth acquired some very good players, and uh, he doesn't care. He uh, he ain't playing them. And this is his right. prerogative. And he made the finals, so he might have saved his job, although I, I don't think he's in Denver long. Uh, whether whether it's – I mean, if I was him, he might he might be. He might be coaching Toronto next year because hmm. he's, he's never been hotter than making the finals – Denver notoriously doesn't pay, yeah. and um, he and he and the GM don't get along. That's that's interesting. You know, his his dad coached the Raptors. He's I think it was the, right. Yeah, yeah, in the inaugural season. Yeah, that's I just right. wrote a, my yeah. friend wrote a book about it actually. Oh wow! Um, uh, I hope he's better tempered than his dad. Um, he he he. Listen, <laughs> he's he. Yeah, I agree with you. He is. Uh, 
he's a good coach. I don't think he's special. I think yeah. he's good. He yeah. runs a very good program. The Nuggets are a, for sure. a professional team. Uh, having had players play for, for him and elsewhere, they would say we're much more prepared uh, with Malone than I've been in other places. There, There's no doubt of that. He's a basketball lifer. Mm. I don't think he's very imaginative in games. I don't think he's uh, trusting. I think he panics all the time. Uh, there's such a big deal, but every time a team goes on a four run, when Jokic is out, he wants to put Jokic back in all the time. Uh, Spo has not done that. Like, I don't think Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent and Duncan Robinson would be, I think they'd be in Poland now if the last team they were on was a Mike Malone team. Mm. But here they are with Polstra and there are key players making the finals. That's just not, that's not his thing. That is a cool thing with, with watching Miami. It's just like, it's so clear that all their, whether you want to call them role players or support players or whatever you want, like they're non Jimmy Butler players all right. feel very yeah. empowered to take the shot yeah. when, when it's the shot. And I almost feel like they're probably getting an earful from, from Spo and then from Jimmy and then from Udonis. If you don't take a shot, you know what I mean? Like if Duncan right. Robinson goes in the game and turns down a three, someone should sit him down on the bench and scream at him. Like that, do, that's, do your, that's your shot. Yeah. You're exactly. on the court to do your job, whatever that job is. Do your job, and we're going to let you do it. If you're, you're gonna have to fail for a while. Duncan Robinson was failing for a while before he's out of the rotation. Tyler mm-hmm. goes down. I mean, Max Ruse, another one. Again, Max Ruse would be in Poland if it wasn't for Miami Heat, probably. He'd mm-hmm. be in Europe somewhere. Um, that's where I think a lot of these coaches fail. We'll get around to talking about Toronto in a minute. Um, that that's always really attractive to me. The coaches that know how to build depth. Uh, 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 it, we have an instrument as coaches with our voice, but also mm-hmm. with our decency our love of, you know for these guys and i don't think a lot of these coaches really get that yeah um i think on Miami's perspective i think aaron gordon's gonna guard jimmy butler that's fairly straightforward um and not in terms of guarding him but like you know that's gonna be the matchup i don't really don't see it any other way um my curiosity with with the heat is just bam like there's just certain games where he he's hitting the mid-range jumper he's looking for it he's going to the rim and he scores probably 25 to 30 points, and he looks amazing. And then there's certain games I thought, like in Game 7, whether it was his confidence or the coverage, or I don't know, maybe he wasn't feeling up to it that day, but he would miss like point-blank layups, and it's just very confusing to see a player who obviously is consistently excellent on the defensive end um, and does the right things and makes the right plays. is an unselfish player, but his offense going up and down so much, it, it just it confuses me a little bit in terms of why Bam is so in and out as a scorer. I mean, there's no question about that. His uh, his mindset just isn't – he doesn't always have that killer scoring mindset. He's not alone in that. I think it's Chris Paul's had an issue with that in his career um, where he, he just wants to be a facilitator more sure. than a scorer. I think that's a mistake. Um, I thought Miami in general attacked the first box way too much in game six. It was like they were hell-bent on rim, 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 and they got a bunch of free throws out of it, but they missed so many shots that, that – uh, had they stopped a little earlier, I think they would have been uncontested. Mm. Game seven, they did the same thing, and then they stopped doing that as much. And once they started making more second box or even some mid-range shots and got Boston to lift their defense up some, right? and they were able to get back to the rim. Just like in football, in American football, well, you guys play it. Um, you establish a good running game. You bring the linebacker and safeties up. You throw over the top. If you want to run better, well, then this is something that didn't used to happen until 20 years ago. Steve Spurrier will help with that. Throw it down the field spread the defense out, then you could run more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to, you got in boxing. If you wanted to get a headshot, you got to attack the body mm-hmm. and to drop their gloves. Right. Um, 
I thought Miami did not do that in game six. Well, they learned in game seven. And um, I mean, Jokic isn't a great shot blocker, but he's a tall dude. Yeah. Denver can put a lot of bodies in the first box and they're taller. I mean, Gordon and MBJ have good size. They're both probably mm-hmm. taller, definitely taller than Jimmy Butler. So uh, both of them. So Miami's got to be able to take those shots and shoot with confidence. Yeah. Um, I do worry a little bit about maybe early in this series, Jimmy Butler getting lifting people with his up fakes. That's a point you guys made too. It was just like the Celtics got really disciplined as the series went on of like not jumping on Jimmy's up fakes. Yeah. And of course, having said that, I mean, that's, that's what happened in, at the end of game six. Like they literally almost lost the series because Al Horford lost his mind and fouled him for three. That, I mean, what a terrible. That, and exactly. Right. And that's like the most veteran player um, on that team. So I, I do want, I, I do, I am a little bit worried for Denver. If, um, Gordon falls for a couple pump fakes early and he's usually very disciplined, but if yeah. he does, if he gets into foul trouble, who's there to back him up defensively? I'm assuming they'll probably go a little KCP on Jimmy Butler, but I don't know. I feel like Jimmy really loves it when he has a smaller guy guarding him. He really couldn't use his physicality. If he's if he's like he looked tired to me in game seven. So if he's yeah. got his legs underneath him, then I agree with you. Yeah, fair enough. But no, I think it's going to be a really good uh, series. And and even though I think all the signs point towards Denver winning, even potentially in five, for example, I, I still, I don't know. I I feel like I've learned my lesson not to sort of count out the heat in any context. And they're, they beat the odds all, all playoff run. And I don't know if Tyler Hero comes back, maybe you have a little bit more pick and roll pull-up shooting that you can maybe throw at. Jokic, obviously, he's a defensive liability. You don't know what kind of shape he's going to be in after missing this whole playoff run. But, you know, he could be a factor potentially later in the series. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think Denver will win, but it, it'll take longer than it needs to be just because Miami's so resilient. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, um, so it's come time for the podcast where we have to talk about the, the Raptors head coaching search for the four-year straight episode. It's uh, – it's, you know, not a lot of news um, on that front, um, uh, other than just the Raptors are in their second round. So there's a couple of guys that they're bringing back in for um, second meetings. I mean, first off, I think maybe from the outsider's perspective, because I think in Toronto, people are just kind of like starting to get a little antsy. Maybe it's just because we're thinking about one topic all the time, but it's like, why should a coaching search last this long? Or why are they talking to so many people? Do you find any issue with that approach? Or is that sort of just like, I don't know. I mean, what is the what is the urgency? You don't really necessarily need a coach in place for this time of year. So in theory, uh, I don't think it's a big deal. In practice, it probably is. And here's what I mean. Okay. Um, who's who's coaching the coaches? Who's coaching the players right now? And who's guiding them? Uh, I talked to one player, uh, I, a guy that I help. I gave him a, a pretty pretty lengthy script of, of what he needs to work on, and then I called his, the guy that's working him out mm-hmm. and walked him through everything, sent him a ton of clips, whatever. I asked the player, uh, what did your team give you? And he said, uh, they told me to sharpen my game. That's the extent of it. Okay. So um, this right. player is lucky. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so, so what's happening with all of Toronto's players? Are, are, are they working out? Are they working out intelligently? Are they mm-hmm. working on their weaknesses? Is there a point to all of this? Is this new coach, you know, if, if they had hired someone already and they, and this guy shared his vision or this woman shared their vision of, of what how they want to play and how to use, let's say, for example, OG. Mm-hmm. We want you to do X, Y, and Z. You've not been doing great at this. Let's mix this in starting now. So right. those opportunities are lost to this point. But on the other side, 
We're not even in May, uh, uh, out of May yet. We will be mm -hmm. tomorrow, mm -hmm. but we're still in May. It's early. You still have a lot of time to establish that. If, if the month of May is really based on getting us, you took the rest of April off after they lost their last game. We're using May to get back in the swing of things, start lifting weights again, shooting, dribbling, whatever. Then we can start locking in in early June and July and even August, three months, mm -hmm. on what we're trying to add to our game for our new system that we're going to use. That So it, it may not matter. It may matter that that's on the coach and what they do. Right. And, you know, I, I think for for the Raptors, I mean, I, I, I'm not even necessarily sure what direction they're going to go in. So that might affect what coach they put into place. I don't think it should, quite frankly, but um, it, it might. And, you know, you, you've heard a couple of candidates start to roll out. Um, Jordy Fernandez, the associate head coach uh, with the Sacramento Kings, he's gained a lot of buzz. I'm not sure if you've crossed paths with Jordy before. Nope. Um, Sergio Scariolo, who was a former Raptors assistant uh, during the championship year, the following year as well. Um, he went back to Italy to sort of implement a lot of what he learned in the game. At least that's what he says. Uh, but he seems to be in the mix. I'm, I'm fairly certain he's going to get a second interview. Uh, it, there seems to be one or two other candidates that potentially could be in this place. I mean, it's, one of the interesting names was Steve Nash. And I, I was curious in terms of like, look, there was nothing really that you could take away too much from what happened in Brooklyn, other than it felt like the players walked over Steve uh, to a, almost an embarrassing degree. But I mean, what do you make of the idea of Steve Nash getting a second chance to be a head coach with the Raptors? Well, there's two sides of that question. Getting a second chance. I'm all for like coach mm -hmm. allowed to get better. Uh, that was a tough situation in Brooklyn. Uh, for sure. Uh, almost, almost unwinnable. Um, with the Raptors, I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like Nick ran a very loose ship. And, um, I mean, it, it paid off with a championship. But uh, I think that's how Steve coaches, too. And mm. I, I like um, I like, I like Spolstra style better. Right. And um, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, he's the best coach in the league right now for a reason. And we don't have many guys like him. Right. And I think our managers are making a mistake. I, I know what's going on. I know they're, they think that these NBA guys don't want to be coached. And I know that because they sure. don't coach them. They don't coach them as much anymore. Uh, and that's a mistake. I had a player say to me yesterday, he wanted me to call his trainer basically saying, uh, he's got to coach us harder. The workout was great. We did a lot of cool things, but he's not correcting me the way you correct me when I, I don't get on the court a lot, but when I do, I'm going to be teaching the game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this guy said, I'm I'm not above. There's two of them. We're not above being yelled at, pushed, challenged. Uh, uh this but this guy's a he's been an NBA coach for five years. And uh this this guy, this guy that's running these workouts, and he's just used to just putting through the paces, not really teaching a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh and holding guys accountable. I think I think uh Nash probably is one of those guys. Now he also can learn from his mistake. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and that's part of the interview process too, is, Hey, what, what do I need to do better? And in Toronto, they need more accountability. They need, yep, you know, we, we're there in their feelings a lot there. Everyone's always heard about stuff. Uh, yep. Udoka, Udoka would have been great in Toronto. Yeah. I mean, I, I, why do you think that is like, why do you think coaches right now are not, I would say afraid, but reluctant to sort of coach harder. Or they, they don't have the backing of their management. 
Okay. So like, what, so is it like a player gets coached hard and it's like, hey, we got to stop this and this because you're sort of not doing this and this and this and we got to sort of really hammer it out. And then that player gets annoyed and then talks to management and goes over the coach. Like what, what are we? Is, he, go, he tells his agent and they talk to his agent. Okay. Yeah. Or, or it just, it, it somehow bubbles up. And, and, the, and part of the problem is they don't build a relationship with their players. Right. Of course. And so um, uh, my wife, my wife once asked my son um, about dad being tough. It wasn't about my son. I wasn't, he was already in college. And my son told her, I wasn't in this conversation, but she told me about it. She said, yeah, but dad builds relationship with his players. So he can be as tough. He was talking about high school kids when I was coaching mm-hmm. his teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, like those, my, all my friends call him the goat. Like they love him because he cares about him about like, how's your girlfriend doing? How's mom doing? How's your sister doing in school? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I gave these kids a million rides. NBA coaches can't do that, but you don't have to go that far to know that this player this player knows, man, that guy believes in me. Right. And, and that, that's where I think we're really failing as coaches and, and our best coaches aren't like, I think Mike Brown is a good dude. I don't know, Mike, I know mm-hmm. some of his, we have mutual friends two in particular, very close mutual friends. I think he's a good person. I think, I think the players know he really, he cares about me. That's step one is how I want, you know, people would say to me, Nick nurse is just a weird dude. That's never a good sign. Yeah, it's it's unfair. Maybe I don't know. I don't know the guy. It's yeah. it, it's you, you can but you can be weird if man, this guy, he's he's gonna let me do my thing. And he's gonna coach me up on it. So that mm-hmm. it works. They all want to do their thing, even if it sucks. So the coach's job is to explain to them. No, no, no this isn't working. Mm-hmm. But here's mm-hmm. what you can do that will work. And let's figure it out together. And uh, the best coaches, I think, are good at that. Right. Uh, but too often they'll helicopter in. They'll coach you up a little bit. They'll helicopter back out. You won't see him again for three weeks. I, I think I may have told the story, not to you, Beverly, but on a few podcasts, I told a player, I asked a player, um, how often did you have a meal with your coach, your head coach? Mm-hmm. And he said, coach, you remember, you remember when you met me in Orlando one time? Cause I live, you know, not even Orlando. Yeah. And we had breakfast at Panera. I said, yeah. He's like, that was the first meal I had with a coach all season. This was like in February. Mm. And right. he's like, and uh, he's like, and I had one film session all year with the head coach one like one-on-one yeah just one-on-one i mean i don't know i'm not saying do it every week but but i think we've gotten away from that and so if i i don't want to be a gm if i was i'd be looking for someone that built relationship with players even though it might be a little bit transactional Mm -hmm. you try to fight you try to fight that you try to make it seem like um i wrote a memo once for a new gm uh that put i put in my book we want players crying when we have to trade them or they're, they sign elsewhere in free agency, or we have to cut them. We mm-hmm. want them to cry because they'll know no one ever is going to care more about them than, than we did. Right. And But the business is the business. So you can't always keep them guys. Of course. I don't think we're developing enough of that relationship. It's a relationship business, and I don't think our coaches realize that anymore, and our executives don't either. Do, do you think that's part of the reason why there's always this impetus of, like, we got to get former players to coach um, the team? And that, that's not unique to, to basketball. Like, that's... No. Like, that's like 99% of Premier League managers are just former players. Sometimes they, like, retire and then immediately go into coaching, which I always feel like, how are you really able to transition those skills immediately without some sort of training elsewhere? But, you know, like, is that why they they want players? Because players have already built some of those relationships with either some of the guys or, you know, they just sort of can say, like, hey, I know what you're going through, this and this and this. Right. It It is a dereliction of duty when they do that. 
there are some players who absolutely connect great with other players and deserve to be hired as coaches. And there are many players who don't do that. Now, there's also coaches that don't that that haven't played and don't connect great with players, and they should not be hired. Okay. You've got yeah. to be able to you've got to be able to connect. They just get hired because they've been around a long time. You've got to be able to connect with people, and players don't have any advantage over that. Mm, um, right. In my opinion, I, I, I mean, if someone never played anywhere, that's different. I mean, I stopped playing in high school. I played pickup every day for a long time after that mm. and had many friends who were on the college basketball team, including the godparents of, of my twins, uh, played at the Gators when I was there. Um, it doesn't require an NBA background to know how to connect with people. Sure, of course. You just have to know how to connect with people and have to be interested in doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I, and that's what's missing a lot. Yeah, for sure. And I think... You know, from the Raptors' perspective, like I'm not saying you got to get the opposite of Nick, um, because I think Nick got no, a lot of no, good, no. good traits as a coach. Like I think, yeah, especially after a guy gets let go, it's sort of like an incentive to like let's let's sort of dump on him and push everything away. I mean, like tactically, the things that he was able to do, the creativity they brought into it yeah. was a really good thing, and I want to look for that quality in the next coach as well. But I also want somebody who can build those relationships who. Um, can you know hold more people accountable and holding people accountable isn't just like I'm gonna yell at you every day because that's not gonna work and trust me Nick was yelling at guys like it just you know eventually at certain points it just uh, lost its uh, its its effect um, you know but you have to build that accountability two way and all that kind of stuff and look I mean the Raptors will decide on a coach it'll happen I'm I'm my prediction is next week but um, you know whoever they hire it's it's gonna be a very important. Um, decision obviously and you know I, I i'm not really sure if the, the the direction of the team necessarily informs who they're gonna hire or vice versa in terms of if they hire let's say jordy fernandez he's a younger guy that means they're gonna you know go long term and develop or if they hire sergio scariolo who's 62 that means that they're gonna win now because i don't know people don't just stop <laughs> coaching it in their 60s or even in their 70s but um the direction of the team is going to be interesting because um, I don't know. I mean, I think the Raptors are kind of at this crossroads, right? They're they're in the middle. The, the, a lot of teams in the league are in the middle. And coach, I, I, from your perspective, like, is there enough talent here in Toronto where it's like we want to continue to build in on this group? There's enough ability and room to improve these players, or do you feel like you know what we could just sort of move some of the pieces? If you can move up in the draft, I think there's maybe an opportunity with Portland. Or Houston, they seem like they really want to compete now. Which direction would you take the Raptors? Or what, what do you think is the more pragmatic approach, I suppose? Uh, I, I think this, the smartest thing for them to do is their starting five had a very good uh, uh, margin when they played together with Pirtle. Mm-hmm. Their bench sucked. Their bench sucked because I think uh, pers- uh, personnel issues as well as coaching issues. In other words, those players maybe playing for Spolstra might have done better. Nick didn't really trust him. Yeah. Um, Nick would argue that they probably weren't very good. Yeah, that's, that's a management failure. I don't know the answer. I don't know those players. But um, seems to me uh, you can build depth when Miami is kicking people's asses with four undrafted players. Yeah. The OG yeah. is undrafted also. Um, the talent's there. You got to coach them up. Yeah. And uh, they've already got a good starting five, maybe a really good starting five with, with some of these players, you know, um, Fred's probably on his way down. OG's on his way up. Scotty's on his way up. Pascal's at the top still for mm-hmm. him. Uh, Pirtle can get better. He's not old. Um, they can build on that. 
so I wouldn't I wouldn't look to re- restart the engines. I try to add a couple of good players to what I have and 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 get you know hopefully Scotty busts out mm-hmm. and you've yeah, got your of version of Tatum and Brown. Um, that's also where a head coach would help too. Is that right now is is someone coaching the young guys, uh, uh, giving them guidance, pushing them, challenging them. I have no idea what's happening. Um, no clue. I think, what's all, I think all they have right now is Rico and, and Jim Sands, yeah, who are like assistant, uh, who are developmental coaches, longtime yeah, guys. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not a believer in that. Yeah, yeah I, I okay. don't think most of these development guys really know how to do what I'm talking about. It needs to come from the top and really challenge these guys. This mm-hmm. is our vision. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're executing it. Get it done every day. I want reports every week. I want film every week. I expect to be back here every every third week so I can see it in person. I think that's the way to do it. I don't know that many mm-hmm. teams are doing it, but I know some are. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Spurs the Spurs have had, I think they're back in town in San Antonio, I think for their fourth week already since summer started. Man. Yeah. They, yeah. No, they, their season ended in mid, April 9th. And it's yeah. the last day of May, and I think this will be the fourth week together. I believe I'm right. Uh, that's smart. Yeah, and, and listen, the Raptors, I mean, it's not like their season ended that much later. They, right, <laughs> they were right. done April 11th after right. the play-in. Right. So right. you you could have had that time, and it, it is a missed opportunity. I mean, I, I'm curious, too, in terms of – do you know much about Chris Quinn? Because I'm watching Miami right now, and yeah. I'm just like, look, if you can get anything that they have, right? You yeah. had the idea of, like, hire UD. Obviously, that was going to be – uh, a more out of out of the box idea. Although at the same time, like you know, he's clearly shown the ability to you know hold guys accountable and build relationships. What about like a guy like Chris Quinn, who's you know he's he's Spo's right hand man? It seems like. Yeah, he, and he and he played. Um, yep. I mean, he's worth interviewing for sure. There's no shortage of those, of those guys. I think I like the idea of bringing someone from Europe as the game gets more tactical, which is how Europeans play mm-hmm. because they don't have the talent we have generally speaking, and so they have to come up with tactics to get shots off. 62 is fine. I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. They've got to be demanding, and they've got to be able to hold players accountable. And, I mean, coach, players do anything if they trust you. you got to get them to trust you. And so right. that's where that's where talent comes in as a coach. A um, whole bunch of women would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to find one. Um, I think I Becky's not... just in too good of a position right now. Like, the Aces are really stacked this year. They've really invested a lot in that team. And, of course, you could say, like, look, the Raptors could give her $8 million rather than, like, $1 million per year, and, and that could be a big factor. And, obviously, this could be a historic hiring as well. But I just think all vibes seems like Becky just in a, is in a good place, and I don't think she wants to be disruptive from that to coach Toronto right. when she doesn't need to. Right, maybe so. I don't follow, I don't follow anything but really NBA. Mm-hmm. So I don't know much else. I barely follow college basketball in general. But um, I, I – we're getting close to the draft. You'd like your coach to have some input. You'd like yeah. to your coach to have some input on, hey, I, I really f- see what he can do for us, or I don't think he'll fit the way we're trying to play. I think there's a value to that. Mm, fair enough. All right. Well, last thing um, in terms of talking about the draft itself, um, I'm not sure where you are in terms of like studying some of the prospects. Um, are any of them really like catching your eye? Obviously, outside of the real top, like, you know, I'm not expecting to say Wemby or Scoot or even Brandon Miller, um, but any of the other guys that are really catching. Because I, I feel like it's interesting looking at this draft. It seems like a lot of guards, a lot of like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, guards who get after defensively or can really score or can really shoot or could play on and off ball. And very, very few bigs that, I mean, I, I, I'm looking at just the lottery portion right now and it's like, 
aside from Wemby, you're not even looking at bigs. Like they're just all wings and guards. Uh, three guys. Um, I've not studied a lot and most just talking to people mm-hmm. uh, who know them or have scouted them a lot. The Thompson twins is an interesting situation. I don't think overtime elite is a great spot um, for a lot of different reasons The they do. Uh, I, I know a player who played overtime elite a year ago. He's in the NBA. Now he loved it, loved it. And I'm glad that he did. I don't know. They taught him a whole lot. Uh, uh, I also don't think the G League teaching uh, guy in the Ignite. I don't think that's a great situation. So it's not unique mm-hmm. to overtime elite. It's hard to find good coaching, but they are big guards who apparently are very athletic, one more so than the other, and both maybe can be primary ball handling ones. People think that they can be, so they're intriguing to me. I'll, I'll study them more once we get past you know these these finals, mm-hmm. and then um, the only guy that I really no, I know a couple guys in the draft, but the only guy I'm in touch with a little bit, I'm happy to say, is uh, kind of exploding up the draft charts, is the kid from Montreal, Omax Prosper. Mm, okay. From Marquette. Uh, he's, I understand why he's moving up the charts. He can really shoot at 6'6 six, six and three quarters without shoes, so 6'8 in shoes, 7 plus, 7'1, seven, 7'2 seven, wingspan, mm-hmm. 40, 40 and a half inch vertical max. 35 and a half off two feet, no, no step. Damn. Um, and he's 20 years old. So yep. uh, super polished young man speaks French, English, I think Spanish. Cause he played for the NBA down in Mexico, that NBA oh, uh, development okay. thing with Ben Matherin. Oh, okay. okay. Also yeah. from Montreal, I think. Yep. Yep. So um, they both learn, oh, he learned Spanish anyway. Very polished young man. His sister, I think is one of the best girls in the country. She's a freshman mm. in Notre Dame at 17 years of age. Uh, very impressive young man. And I'm hearing like maybe even late lottery in terms of teams. Teams in late lottery are now considering him because he's like OG and all these other guys that can guard every position on the court, really mm. one through five, and shoot. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if he can do anything else. He can't. What I've seen, he can't do anything else at the NBA level. But that can but get you on the shoot. floor at least. And now you got minutes and now right. you can develop. Yeah. Exactly. So he, he can guard anyone. Apparently, I did not watch the games, but apparently he Marquette beat Connecticut twice. So the national champions were beat twice mm-hmm. by by Marquette. And, and Marquette won the regular season, Big East, and the tournament. And he apparently shut down Hawkins twice, uh, chasing him around screens, locking him up right. at the point of attack. And I think that's kind of getting out now. And again, 20 years old, three years in college. And, st- and will be drafted as a 20-year-old, mm-hmm. uh, decided to stay in, I saw, I read. And, um, yeah, I think that he just kind of looks the part of a guy that you draft in, you know, 15, 17, 18, and yeah. you know within a year he's going to be in the rotation for you. Yeah, no, I mean, first off, obviously, from a Canadian perspective, it's always great to hear uh, more talent coming out of Canada. It's just it, – it's starting to be like, you know, obviously uh, – Ontario was such a big thing. Southern Ontario, this is like where the majority of Canadians live anyway, especially immigrants. Um, and you've always had talent coming out of Toronto and the greater Toronto area. But like Montreal, obviously, is now like sprouting. Like every year, there's there's a there's a prospect from Montreal. Like, you know, so um, that's great to hear. Um, definitely heard his name a couple of times. I had a friend of mine who did a big profile on him uh, for the, the local paper here, Toronto Star. And uh Seems like a good guy. Seems like a cool background. And real, Matt, real professional kid. Yeah. Uh, I asked him once how workout went via text, and he he wrote me a pretty lengthy 
uh, um, summation. And I sent it to an agent and said, do your players ever send you stuff like this? He's like, I've never seen any player in my mm. tenure as an agent. Uh, it's actually an agent, you know, we'll talk about it yeah, later, but um, sure. he wrote back. He's like, I've never seen any player do this. Yeah. So he just kind of, kind of got that kind of mind for it. So, and, cool. I, and, and I saw, I watched the combine and they asked, they asked his coach. He had, he had the, he was the best player in the combine. Yeah. Right, 21 right, and exactly. eight in the one game. Yeah. The coach was asked like, who's been the loudest, most charismatic right away. He said prosper. Mm-hmm. And then I talked to a, a, a mock drafts guy that does really good mock drafts who really talks to the leagues, every day, teams every day. And I said, who have you heard is interviewing the best? And he said, oh, this kid Prosper from Marquette, every team is just blown away with. Mm. And um, so it seems like he checks every box. And now it's just a matter of getting teams to, to, to get feel like, okay, we can take him at 18 or 16. New Orleans at 14 needs a player like him. Sure. Uh, yeah. But are they willing to do it and maybe not get an A grade, you know, by ESPN or whatever? That's, that's what you have to see. Um, sure. Miami drafts at 18. They won't care what mock no, drafts They will saying. not care. Yeah. There's four or five teams. OKC won't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where he'll probably end up going earlier than people probably expect. A team, a team that doesn't care what the mock drafts think. Yeah. No, that's, 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 uh, who, who, do you mind me asking who is that person in terms of the, what you're referencing who does really good mock drafts are, are they in immediate oh rafael barlow oh okay yeah all right took cool, over cool. for Obviously. chad ford the big board he's great yeah yeah, yeah. he is great yeah, yeah. okay good. i call Definitely him to get i call him to get updates on what's going on because he's calling teams i don't call teams all the time he does yeah. so i call rafael mm, fair enough um okay last thing actually i had a surprise topic on here mostly because so um myself personally i did not play any basketball at any level um, started getting uh, this past year. I've been playing a lot of like organized pickup basketball, so it's like okay. the same guys every run. So I know their games and all that stuff. And I'm trying to like get better at my own game. And I thought that you know, obviously, people pay you thousands of dollars. I'm sure maybe even more than thousands of dollars to 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 train them up. But I have you essentially hostage on this podcast. So I would love to ask, like, what are three drills that you would give to a complete novice like me? So to give you a, a profile of my game currently. I walk around kind of like George's Niang on a court. You know, I'm just going to park at the three-point line. I'm not going to do that much to get open, but I can't actually hit shots. Um, that's the one thing that I've actually worked on, and I'm actually pretty decent at shooting. I have no other skills. My handle is, like, at a zero. Um, I can rebound. I'm tall. I'm 6'2", so, you know, I can I can use my size, but definitely not overwhelming athletically. What are three skills that you or three drills that I can sort of add to my workout so that I can get better at my pickup run? I'll make it really easy for you. Okay. All right. All you have to do besides shooting, and then shooting includes, you know, finishing layups, uh, put back because at six two, you can put tip ins, whatever. And yeah. Um, all you should work on is your ball handling. It just ball opens handling. up. Everything. Okay, yeah. 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 That is the limiting handling. step. I can't get into my shot. That's why right. I always need to like wait for someone to get doubled and then kick right. it out to me, or I'm like trailing in transition and I'm open. But like, if I have to use my dribble at all, like I, I, it just slows me down so much. So, I knew what I was saying when I said it. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's, I mean, it, it's going to sound silly, but I tell this to every every player, uh, except you know, except for some big guys who don't dribble much, you got to dribble more. All my guards that I have, um, you got to you got to work on your handle more and more and more, more handle all the time. It's it's the most limiting thing in the game if you can't if you can't dribble. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jalen Brown should work on his handle a lot more. He had eight turnovers and. 
Game yep. seven. Yep. He's always needed to. Tatum used to be a bad dribbler. He's much better. Much, yep. much, much better. He was a mm-hmm. bad dribbler for years. Um, Wiggins has never really become that kind of ball handler. And now it's probably too late for him. And it's too bad because it limited his ceiling. It yep. lowered his ceiling. So you can't do enough ball handling in your workouts. Okay. What's like the simplest ball handling workout? Just I can dribble. Start doing tomorrow? Hammer nails. I asked, remember Jason Williams? White Jason Williams? Yep, yeah, white, yeah. white chocolate? Yeah. He was in my gym I think there's just one, by the way. Huh? <laughs> I think there's just one. I don't know if there was yeah, a Yeah, you're Jason right. Well, yeah. remember, I'm old enough to remember, too. Oh, okay. All right, all right, all right. ESPN's Jason you. Williams was a great, great player. Great, great uh, player. Where he okay. got hurt. So yeah. there were two Jason Williams in our minds. Gotcha, um, gotcha. I asked him, what's your secret? He's the best ball I ever saw. He was in my gym every day. I said, I wasn't training him. He was just playing pickup with the guys that I was training in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what's your, uh, what's your secret? And he's, he's real country boy. He said, uh, ah, coach, I'm just hammering nails. Mm. So I, I saw it right away. Like, okay, that's genius. I talked to a player the other day, a very good guard in the NBA. And uh, he said, when I'm remembering to hammer nails, I'm such a better dribbler. Mm. Um, it, it's back on your hands. So hammer it all the time. Your arm should be sore from your ball handling. Stationary. Okay. I mean, we do it. We'll just pick a shape in the court and dribble around that shape, attacking things. Going up and down the court, hammer nails, changing direction, change speeds. Right. Imagine Muggsy Bogues is guarding you. I have a drill called the Muggsy drill. Some mm-hmm. of these things might even be on YouTube because people come in and, and film them, whatever. Yeah. And just imagine Muggsy's guarding your full court and you have to pick it up against pressure. Right. Change right. speed, change the direction, escape dribbles, but everything is, you don't always have to hammer, but you often need to hammer it always when you need to. Okay. Uh, change your pace, your dribble some in terms of how hard you dribble it and hit it when you need to. But um, just get better at getting the ball back in your hands all the time. Okay. All right. This is this is I'm 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 eager to do it probably later today when awesome. it's a little cooler. Um. All right, Coach. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Obviously, you can't recommend true uh, true hoop, the written content, the podcast content. Um. You know, it's it's, it's just excellent. I'm sure you know you've you're going to cover a lot of the similar topics. So, yeah. um. But it's it's worth a listen, and um. You know. I'm sure we will connect again in the summertime, but uh, appreciate your time for now. And uh, yeah, I'm going to sign off for this podcast. Uh, make sure you rate, review, subscribe. And yeah, again, we're going to have daily content. So you're going to be swarmed with uh, just me talking all the time. So check back in for more episodes uh, tomorrow.